I'd like to go ahead and follow along. We're going to be looking at a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Seems clear from everything that God has provided in his word that the cause of salvation is foremost in his mind, that he wants everyone to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God states it emphatically, clearly, that we should not only be acting towards it in our daily life, but praying for it. And yet, sadly, there can be many things that are going to keep us from doing God's will, from acting the way that he would want us to act. And Jesus warned about the idea of our getting in the way of God's will unfolding in the lives of others. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 3, he said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Such strong language makes us fully aware of the fact that our Lord is telling us that if we do something that is offensive, that would cause another to stumble, to get in their way of access to God, that it would be better for us to be destroyed now than to have to deal with the wrath of God. When we're talking about offense, we're not talking about an emotional feeling, I've been offended, you hurt my feelings. We're talking about the idea of tripping up another, putting something in the way of someone else that inhibits them from their free access to God and salvation. Is it possible that we can become an offense? Is it possible that we can get in the way? And if so, how? So I want to think about that today. Are you, am I, in God's way? Are we putting a stumbling block, a stone of offense somewhere that inhibits God's will from being carried out in the life of others? The first thing we need to think about is the nature of God. Because we recognize in looking at God, we know that it's not possible in one sense, for us to do anything that's going to change God's will. When we look at the nature of God, we understand that God is eternal. 
Uh, I have Acts chapter 17 there. And Paul's speaking to the people of Athens on the day of Pentecost. And he mentions, <clears throat> beginning in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for the dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one. So in looking at what Paul was saying, he's talking about God as creator, as sustainer, as provider. Thinking about the fact that he created everything, thus everything exists because of his particular will. That he is without end. Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 57 and in verse 15. He said, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite one. That phrase that inhabiteth eternity tells us about the nature of God. He created the world. He existed prior to creation. He existed without the need of creation. Creation is provided for us. It demonstrates not only his benevolent nature, but also his powerful nature. He is eternal and over all things. But we even have a, a further discussion in thinking about God, as found in Psalm 139, this is a Psalm of David. It simply says, O Lord, beginning in verse one, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy right hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. Verse 23, it just says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Here he's talking about the, the nature of God and thinking about the fact that first off, he's all powerful. He is the almighty God. All might, all power rests with him. He knows everything. Thou knowest, he said in verse two, my down sitting and mine uprising, such knowledge is too great for me, he went on to say. So we recognize in thinking about what God knows, he knows everything. There's not anything God doesn't know. And all knowledge comes from God. 
But then he goes on in verse 7, he says, Whither shall I go? Where can I go that you're not there? That's a wonderful thought that maybe we don't reflect upon enough. There's no place I can go that God's not going to be there. There's no place I can hide that God won't find me. There's no place I can travel that God won't be there. For the child of God, there should be comfort in knowing no matter what situation I'm in, no matter who I'm with, no matter where I go in serving God, he will be with me. That's because of his nature of being God. The fact of the matter is when I contrast myself to God, man is God's creation. We are not God. We're made in a physical form. God made us. Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. As such, we are less than he is. We are limited. We don't have all power. We don't know everything. You may know some people that do. There are a lot of people that like to think they know everything. And there are people that when they don't know everything, they'll just tell you that they do. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's not possible. It's not possible for the human mind to comprehend every single thing that exists in our universe and comprehend it in such a way that God comprehends. Yes, maybe I can understand the concept of the universe and the planets and uh, I can understand things from an engineering standpoint. I can understand things from a mechanical standpoint. There may be some other areas that I have a superior knowledge to other people, but there is no one person who understands everything perfectly like God does. So having all knowledge, it's not possible. Having all might is not possible. Living beyond a relative time frame is not possible. Back in Acts 17, Paul said, God has established boundaries and determined the times. If we want to live to be 200 years old, we can set that as a goal. But the evidence is we're going to fall far short. We're not God. We don't take on his nature. We can live a life that imitates that nature. And by so doing, are guaranteed God that we can partake of the eternal part of that in the life to come. But as such, we are the created who are designed to serve the creator. So I'm limited, God is unlimited. How can I get in God's way? Well, there are several ways that we can do that. And what we're talking about is not that I can stop anything that God has started, but that I can hinder the progress of others from enjoying that. So in thinking about Someone like Abraham. When God has a plan, and I think I can help that plan to work better. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Well, God made this promise to Abraham before he and Sarah had any children. And they couldn't have children. But God said, I'm going to make sure that you do 
have children. Well, what ends up happening is that Abraham and Sarah come up with this plan. And the plan is that Abraham would go into Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and have a child by her. But of course, once that thing was done, it angered Sarah. But in the doing of that thing, it also did not allow God to do what he was planning to do. And so in chapter 17, we have the account where God in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, says, verse 17, Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old? Shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. So God's plan was to demonstrate his power by providing for Sarah to have a child. But they were rebuked in what they did because they sought to get in the way of what God did. They didn't wait for God's plan to unfold according to God's time frame. And in this regard, when I'm not patient with God's will, and I try in some way to help God's will, I can become a stumbling block to others, or even in that regard, to myself. I get in God's way when I sin. We've been studying in the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, in verse 17, God told the people, According as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee, only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. So Joshua was set up. The people were told to follow Joshua. The people agreed to it. They said that we're going to treat Joshua exactly like we did Moses. The only one who has more authority is God. But when they were given a command by God through Joshua with respect to the destruction of Jericho, they were told, don't take anything. The city of Jericho was accursed. And in that regard, it meant it is dedicated unto God. It belongs to God. It does not belong to you. If you steal from that, you're stealing from me. But we have the account then found in Joshua where there was an individual, an individual named Achan, who determined not only to steal, but then to hide it. Well, his sin then became an offense unto the people, unto Joshua, because then God sent them out as an accursed people to fight against the city of Ai, and they were defeated in so doing it. We learn then that Achan, because of his sin, loses his life. His family lose their life. God wanted to bless Israel. But sin got in the way and it caused them to be cursed. 
Achan became a stumbling block to Joshua, to Israel, and to God's plan. We get in God's way when we offer excuses. In Exodus chapter 4, we have the wonderful account of dealing with Moses. God calls Moses, wants him to be the deliverer, the spokesperson for God in delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses is a very humble man. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. So God gives him some evidence through the way of miracles, so that Moses can be convinced that as God is with him, God will provide for him. In verse 10, Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, I pray thee by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. In effect, God was telling Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to provide for you. You're not going to be doing this alone. Everything you need, I will take care of. In this regard, being a humble man was a hindrance. Humility in this respect became a stumbling block not only to Moses, but to the unfolding of God's plan. Moses didn't see himself as capable. And in one respect, that's true. We're not capable. But God says, when we do his will according to his word, and we use his resources, we become capable. So maybe we think in our minds of such passages of scripture as 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless. It doesn't mean that we are going to be the greatest person that ever lived. It simply means God says, I will teach you what you need to do and I will show you how to do it so that in doing my will, you'll be complete. You'll be the type of person that I want you to be. That's what God was saying to Moses. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you those miracles. You'll be the type of man I need to be. But Moses, in his humility, felt unworthy. And we need to recognize that when God says, I can do a thing, that it can be done. We get in God's way when we become stubborn. We know the famous story 
in dealing with Jonah. God called Jonah. He said, I want you to go to the Ninevites. And I want you to preach repentance to those people. Jonah left. And he went in a different direction. He did not want to go. (coughs) Excuse me. He did not want to go. He tried to avoid going. And the reason was very simple. He saw the Ninevites as an evil people. And he wanted them punished. But God saw them as people worthy of being saved. So he wanted them to repent. Jonah chapter 3. Looking at verse 10. God saw their works that they turned from evil, their evil way. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. Chapter 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry. He clearly understood the Lord's will. He said he did. I knew what you were going to do. If I preached to them, they would repent and they would be saved. Because you're merciful, you're loving, you're kind, you're slow to anger. You don't want to see evil flourish. When our attitude is different than the standard of God, when we think our way of judgment is better than God's way of judgment, when we feel the people of the world should be punished instead of being saved, we're going to become the type of people like Jonah who get in the Lord's way. In the end, the only one who suffered was Jonah. God's will unfolded. The people of Nineveh repented. Their city was not destroyed. The only one in all of this who was miserable was Jonah. And there's a lesson involved in that for us. That when we get in the Lord's way, the end result is going to be, we're going to be miserable. What about when we are fearful? We have the account in Matthew chapter 14 of Jesus coming to his disciples on the water. Pardon me. In Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, it says, The fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, 
He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Jesus identified himself. He encouraged them, be of good cheer. He strengthened them. Don't be afraid. So Peter said, if it's really you, bid me to come. And that's what he did. But when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to consider his surroundings, he forgot the power of the Lord and he began to sink. Fear causes us to fail because fear weakens faith and a weak faith takes their eyes off of Jesus. If we want to be strong in our faith, we have to focus on the Lord and not allow fear to interrupt the strengthening of our faith. We get in the Lord's way when we determine that uh, we think it's a good idea to change his will. Revelation 22 verse 18 says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. <coughs> if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God is not asking for my counsel. He is not giving me a first draft of his will and then asking me to make any edits to it. I was watching a video the other day on YouTube. And this guy was supposedly a Christian. Wanted to, tell, wanted to teach people that our concept of the Ten Commandments is wrong. That in the Jewish Bible... We begin with the wrong one and that some of the words they have are different than our English words and don't mean the same thing. But then on top of all of that, he said, Jewish people don't call them the Ten Commandments. They call them the Ten Announcements. I thought, wow, how, how convenient that is. I don't know if that's true. I don't know any Jewish people. I've never seen that anywhere. But imagine if that were our attitude with respect to God's word. It's just his announcement. You know, when people announce things, we can take it or leave it. It's not incumbent upon us. I'm going to open a brand new store. Well, good for you. Maybe I don't want to shop there. I don't know. We're going to have a party at our house. Well, unless you specifically invite me, I'm probably not going to come. And even at that. I might not come if it's not the type of party I want to go to. Imagine thinking about God's word as just saying, well, this is what God said, but I don't really need to be worried about it. And what God is telling us in the final chapter, the final book that we have in his word, is I don't have a right to change his will in any way, shape, or form, no matter what purpose I have in doing that. God provides the finished product. My role is to simply learn and obey. When I change his will, I become like Abraham. When I change his will, I become like Achan. When I change his will, I become like Jonah. 
When I change his will, I become like Peter. All of these individuals had a reason for turning away and doing something that caused them to fall in their relationship with God. But of course, our final thought is when we simply try and stop his will from being done. We have this account in, in Matthew chapter 16. Not long after Peter has spoken these wonderful words, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And upon that, the Lord commends Peter for his understanding of God's will. And then he tells him, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed to the religious leaders there and I'm going to be crucified and on the third day be raised. And what ends up happening in verse 22, Peter said, not so, Lord, for be it from thee. We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus said in verse 23, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. I expect that Peter's response was out of love, out of respect, out of care for the Lord. But maybe he was looking at what Jesus said as simply an announcement and not a realization it was God's will. We're not going to let it happen. And the Lord said, if you take that attitude, you're no better than the devil. You're no better than Satan. If you stand before the Lord to keep his will from being done, you fall into the wrong camp. <clears throat> we don't have any right to look at God's will, whatever our emotional stance, whatever our rationale behind it is, to make any changes. Whether we think we're helping him, whether it's actually committing sin, whether we're giving excuses for why we shouldn't be called upon, whether it's stubbornness on our part or fear, changing his will or simply standing in his way and stopping him. We don't have a right to do that. Because when we do, we become an offense and we get in his way. And people may have sincere motives for doing it, but when they do it, they're standing in God's way. So whatever reason we may have, God is not asking for our help. He's only asking for our obedience. And if we ignore it in dealing with his word or modify it or assist it or seek to help it in any way, we're simply disobeying him. And in this way, we stand against his will. We stand in front of his will instead of standing with his will and supporting his will. If we will stand with God, if we will uphold his will, if we will trust him in following his word, he guarantees that we will be his faithful children and that he will lead us unto eternity. Of course, God's will is for you to hear the gospel and be saved by obeying Jesus. That's what we began with. We began with that verse that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 4. That God wants all men to be saved. He wants us to be praying for it. He wants us to be acting towards it. And the way that we do that is to preach his word, all of his word. We don't withhold anything. We preach that Jesus came to this world 
as God's lamb of sacrifice, that though he was without sin, he was crucified on the cross, shedding his blood that we can have remission of sins. Then he was buried. On the third day, he was resurrected. He's now ascended into heaven, seated on the right hand of the Father above, where he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Before he departed this earth, he told his apostles, go forth and preach that message. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. All those who believe God's word, confess Jesus as Christ, repent of their sins and are baptized for the remission of their sins, have the promise of God that he'll take the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, cleanse our soul spotless and free, Take away all of our sins. Remember them no more. Claim us as his child. Bring us into his household. And then following his will without changing any of it, he guarantees that we can have a place with him for all eternity. If there's anyone we can help to do that this morning, please let us know while we stand and while we sing.